0: your attention to the book of Matthew chapter 9 the book of Matthew chapter 9 verse 35 and I give honor to your great pastor and your district NAM director pastor Haman and his whole team his family um, and and all of the church members here in the great saints Calvary Apostolic Church for all of your hard work dedication and um, getting behind your pastor's vision for this conference I honor you for that and um Bishop uh, Haman, I honor you for all of your years of labor and faithfulness here in in this church. And um, what a testimony to your faithfulness and the glory of God. Uh, Matthew chapter 9. It is a a great privilege to be with a number of great men today. I feel um, as the least of these. And I'm not being facetious at all to say that. I really do. Um, Because I'm wedged between a Ph.D., I'm just going to go with that, Ph.D., and Brother Reddy, and um, Brother Staten, who is just Brother Staten. He is the, the legend, he is the multiple works and churches planted all over the country, and doing an amazing, amazing work in D.C., and of course our NAM director, a Great man of God and, and a man who I highly esteem, um, and indeed, who uh, his vision and work in Detroit serves still to this day, Brother really strong as a great inspiration to us and what I believe God is wanting to do in Greater Los Angeles. He is an apostle in this modern day, and uh, there were um, apostles written about in Scripture. We get to walk among apostles. And so I am flanked on either side by great men, and uh, but I I I do come today with what I feel in the Holy Ghost um, to speak, and um, this is something that God has put in my heart uh, for the current day and age that we are living in right now, and God really has challenged me along these lines. Um, I shared some of this at a conference recently called Launch and. I want to share some of this today and this is just something that is in my heart and in my spirit and the lord has directed me that wherever i would go should i be given the privilege or the opportunity to speak before anything that is even remotely nam even remotely related to ministry or culture amen that i would uh speak what i feel the lord has put in me for this hour matthew chapter 9 and jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Everybody say, the gospel of the kingdom. Uh And healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. He was moved with compassion. Then saith he unto his disciples, the harvest is truly plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye, therefore, the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. I want to preach today or speak today for the next few moments about having a missionary mindset. We need a missionary mindset in 2021 because this is truly apostolic. Apostolic people are missionaries. Apostolic people live on mission. Apostolic people work on mission. Apostolic people fulfill the great commission. Amen. Without this, we are not apostolic. It doesn't matter how nice our buildings are and how great our preaching is and how beautiful our music is. Without being missionaries, we cannot call ourselves apostolic. God, help us today in Jesus' name. Help me preach and help us hear in Jesus' name your word. I pray, Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Um, a missionary mindset. There are. <clears throat> More than 300 urban areas, with a population of over 100,000 people in the United States of America, as of right now, 83% of the populized or, or of the uh, population of the United States lives in urbanized areas. The U.S. metro economies account for 91.1% of all of our GDP. 88% of all the jobs in the nation, 91.8% of all of our wage income come from our metro areas. Conversely, I've heard varying statistics repeated on this front. We do have our NAM director here, so he can, he can, he can correct me if I'm wrong. I have heard that about 80% of our churches in the movement are in more rural areas. This is what I have heard. Uh, So according to what I've heard We have uh, what what appears to be 80% of our churches In places where 83% of the population is not Uh, (laughs) um, So we're in a city, a great city, Denver There's not many apostolic churches here We need more apostolics in Denver We need more churches planted in Denver We need to have revival Is this a revival conference? Is this a revival conference? I know what we mean by the name revival. Um, I'm kind of a stickler for terminology. I always tell our church, I don't just want to have revival. Because revival means that something is dead and needs to be revived. We need to see a harvest. Yes. <clears throat> I, I feel like uh, it, on some level, and I'm being very careful and respectful here, but we are a victim of, re- of, of, of revival sometimes. We have a revival mindset. We have got to revive the dead. So we have churches that every Sunday we've got to bring them in. They wheel them in on a gurney, <clears throat> you know. Holy Ghost-filled people, you know, they 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 stumble in. You know, they barely make it in on a gurney. We got to wheel them to the altar, and I've got to spend 30 to 40 minutes preaching life back into them, prodding spirit back into them, challenging vigor back into them, trying to get some anointing back, and just just doing. You know, just CPR in the altar so we can revive them. And I know what we mean by revival, but we need harvest. We need harvest in our cities in 2021. And in order for us to see harvest, we have to have laborers. And so we've got to have a generation of people that rise up and say, Pastor Haman, what do we need to do to reach this city? What do we need to do to have harvest in this place? What do we need to do? I'm tired of being wheeled in on a Sunday and having to be revived. But i got to get something in me for the harvest for this city. Amen. So I can go out of these doors and I can reach somebody with the gospel of the kingdom. So we have 80% of our of our churches in in seemingly in in 83% of places where people are, are not living or are not migrating to. And I give honor to rural churches today. I do. Rural guys are my heroes. You know, being a church planner specifically in a great metro area like LA with all the craziness that accompanies a place like Los Angeles. You know, we hear a lot, I don't know how you guys do it. You know, you guys are, you guys are heroes and all that. And, and I, I, I don't, I'm just from there. That's just me. So when I go to rural places, I'm a fish out of water. And I, and I look around rural places and I say, I don't know how you do it. You know, you, rural churches, I honor those that are, we need churches in our rural communities. It's so funny though, sometimes we do that. We're like, I don't know how you can do that. You know, I was preaching in Detroit, Detroit, of all places. And a lady came up to me, and she goes, I don't know how you live in L.A. <laughs> it was February in Detroit. <laughs> I said, lady, you're in Detroit. I don't know if you've looked around. I don't know how you live in L.A., you know, I, but here's the reality, though. What happens in urban America will ultimately make its way into suburban and into rural America. So this myopic idea that we can hide behind small-town America and and not confront the pervasive culture or deal directly with the spirit of this age, the idea that we can somehow hide behind friendly culture or culture that is more amenable to the church uh, and kind of hide behind a a Christian nation, the idea of a Christian nation and not confront the spirit of this age is a faulty idea at best. You know, there's some interesting things going on in our cities in 2021. Uh, In her article, How the Pandemic Paved the Way for Millennial Mysticism, author Kristen Wong says that millennials are leading the growing cohort of Americans who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. She points to a study by Pew, which reports that now six in 10 Americans believe in a new age concept like reincarnation, astrology, physics, and the presence of spiritual energy in physical objects like mountains or trees. You probably have a few of that around here. <clears throat> and since the pandemic, astrologers and tarot readers have seen an increase in business, she says. In May of 2020, the New York Times reported that traffic to some astrology sites are steadily increasing. One site, Days Digital, saw a 22% increase in horoscope-related traffic from the previous quarter. Also in May of 2020, Bloomberg reported that the market for gems and healing crystals and amethyst, rose, quartz, and tourmalade was beginning to outpace even the diamond market. In 2018, the witches versus patriarchy subreddit was born, a group dedicated to dismantling patriarchy through pagan mysticism and became one of the fastest growing subreddits with now over a quarter million members joining each year. My goal today is not to bog you down with statistics. My goal today is to not do that, but simply point to the fact that as more Americans migrate to urban centers and as our cities and our urban centers migrate away from evangelicalism and traditional Religion, something is becoming increasingly evident. Why is it important to deal with this at this conference today? North America's cities are no longer post Christian. We talk a lot about post Christian. We're, we're post Christian. We are no longer post Christian. We are living in pagan cities. We are living in a pagan culture. LA is a pagan city. Denver is becoming, if not already, a pagan city. And most of our North American cities and even suburbs and urban regions are not far behind. Here's how you know if you're living in a pagan culture. Pagan culture believes the thing that we need salvation from is the very idea that we would need salvation. Ladies and gentlemen, we are there. We are there. This describes the current state of affairs in our large cities. The idea, the audacity that that I would need salvation. The idea that somehow my way of life is somehow wrong, is that is the very thing that we need salvate that's pagan culture. <clears throat> this this shift in culture, it creates opportunities and it creates challenges because the good news is the events of the New Testament church transpired largely in pagan cities the miracles and the signs and the wonders and the breakthrough and the outpouring and the church planting and the harvesting. It happened in pagan cities. Here's the reality. Pagan culture is much more receptive to truly transformational experiences with God than many even traditionally religious cultures are. This is why you can go into a pagan city and people are open. But you can go to a a, a city in the Midwest, and people are closed off. You know, traditionally mainline evangelicalism just closed off. Author and professor Clay Rutledge wrote an article for the New York Times about this, and he says, when people turn away from one source of meaning, such as religion, they don't abandon the search for meaning altogether, they simply look for it in different forms. He says, the decline of traditional religion has been accompanied by a rise in diverse range of supernatural, paranormal, and related beliefs. Follow me for just a minute. Nearly one-third of Americans report having felt in contact with someone who has died, feel that they have been in the presence of a ghost, and believe ghosts can interact with and harm or touch humans. This used to be a fringe element of our society. One-third of this nation now believes in the paranormal. These numbers are going up, not down, he says, as more people seek something to fill the religion-shaped hole in their lives. By no coincidence, infrequent church uh, attendees are roughly twice as likely to believe in ghosts as regular churchgoers. Can I submit that this bodes well for the 21st century apostolic church? Because if infrequent churchgoers or less religious people or pagan American people are twice as likely to believe in supernatural events, then as our cities move away from traditional religion, which no longer believes in supernatural events, then the people in our cities, I believe, are gonna be more inclined and open to experience the supernatural power that we have. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. Such as I have, give big budgets and big programs Have we none, brother Staten, but such as we have, give I thee, Washington, D.C., such as I have, give I thee, Detroit, give I thee, Denver, give I thee, Los Angeles, such as I have, give I thee, Colorado, I may not have the size, I might not have the resources, I might not have the budget, but I've got something that this world is looking for. So you're telling me, you're telling me there's a growing cohort in my community that believes in ghosts. That's interesting, because I know a ghost. I'd like to introduce you to them, such as I have in the name of Jesus. What an incredible opportunity that is right in front of us, that I believe that God has uniquely positioned this generation of apostolics to dwell in. I believe this is an open door for in-time apostolic harvest. <clears throat> but with every open door, Paul said, there are adversaries. He said a great door and effectual is open and with it there are adversaries. There is a great door open in front of us. There is a great door for in-time apostolic harvest, if we will be sensitive to the Spirit, if we will understand the day and age in which we live in. We have to understand. We've got to get understanding. You know, what is it that separates churches, great churches? I've I've kind of thought about this a lot. And and I think the, the easy answer is, well, one church maybe seems to have the power of God. But I don't, I don't know that that's really the answer. I think perception is greater than power. I think what we perceive and what we understand about what God is trying to do is, is what can kind of separate one ministry from another, one preacher from another. Because we all have the same power. It's not about a power. We don't have a power outage. Amen. There's no shortage of power. We all have the Holy Ghost. We're serving the same God. We're preaching the same doctrine. Amen. Why is it that some churches are having end time harvest and others are not? I believe, I don't believe it has anything to do with the power, the presence of God at work in these churches because we are apostolic. The power of God is here. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm going to be there. That's a biblical promise. Amen. 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 And so I, I believe it's perception, and we have to understand, we have to perceive the day and age in which we live. We have, if we are willing to follow the leading of the Spirit, if we are willing to understand the world we're living in today, if we are willing to look at a city like L.A. or a city like D.C. or a city like Detroit or a city like Denver and say, this city's so far from God, but I need to understand what God is doing in this city. Let me tell you, there's a great door in front of us, and apostolics, if we'll walk through it in faith. If we'll walk through it in faith and we'll trust God and we'll be who God has called us to be. I'm telling you, I feel this with every fiber of our being, my being, that we are going to experience an end time harvest very, very soon. That God, there is no coincidence why we have gone through the COVID and why, why we have gone through the pandemic and the shutdowns and the lockdowns and the riots and the, and the cities burning in the streets. I, I, there's a reason why we are here at this point right now. There is a great door and effectual that is open to us. There are many adversaries. I want to present to you a few of the challenges of reaching pagan culture. As we shift from a post-Christian culture to a pagan culture, there's a few challenges here. There's a challenge of effective evangelism in pagan culture. There's a challenge of authentic discipleship in pagan culture. There's the challenge of political polarization in a fractured culture. But here's the beauty. The answer to all three of these challenges is the same exact thing. And the answer is this. We must become missionaries to our cities. And we must strive to produce missionaries for our cities. You are a missionary. It doesn't matter where you're at in your walk with God, you're a missionary. It doesn't matter where you're at today, you're a missionary. It doesn't matter your age, it doesn't matter how young you are, or how old you are, how long you've been doing this, or how new you are to this, you are a missionary. Somebody say, I'm a missionary. Come on, you got to get this in your spirit. Somebody say, I'm a missionary. Spurgeon said it this way, and this always, this, this, this quote haunts me. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. You're a missionary. The North American church, historically, and I love the church, but has done a good job producing members, but a poor job producing missionaries. Let me tell you something. The, the church does not have a mission. The mission has a church. What's the mission of the church? That's the wrong question. Church doesn't have a mission. I'm all for vision and mission statements. I get it. I understand it. We do that. But the church doesn't have a mission. The mission has a church, the mission has a body. The mission has a young person sitting on a pew today waiting to understand I am a missionary. I am a laborer in this. I am a co-laborer in this. This is the gospel of the kingdom. I'm a missionary. I'm not created to sit on a pew. I've been created to be sent out into this city as a the missionary has a church planner that's sitting in this room waiting to answer a call. The missionary has a preacher in this room waiting, amen, to answer the call. Amen, to become a missionary. The missionary has a young man or a young woman or a couple in this place the mission has a church and we've been so laser focused in the American church about producing members I'm not against it we we do it in Los Angeles I understand why we, we do it but we're so laser focused on producing members we've got growth tracks and next steps and we've got You know, all of these resources and energy poured into producing members. We need membership. I understand this. But we've gotten really good at producing members. But not equipping missionaries. Pastor McGovern, how how can you say that? I'm going to prove it to you in, in just a minute. We because we've done a really good job producing members that know how to come and sit and soak, but don't know how to be sent, we now find ourselves in the unenviable position of feeling ill-equipped to reach cities that we can no longer hide behind the idea of a Christian nation. And we have no clue how to reach these people. So we feel lost and we feel under-equipped on how to reach a post-post-Christian pagan people. Why? Because we don't have missionaries. I'm going to prove it to you. Nowhere has this been more pronounced than in my state, California. I had a conversation recently with a friend of mine I won't out him. He's a good friend. He's a good friend. He left a church in a large city to a small town in the Midwest. Nothing wrong with that. You go where God has called you to go. And if God calls you to small-town America, then you go to small-town America and you build the greatest church in that city. I am so thankful for great churches in small towns. One of my very best friends, Jaron Carney, has one of the best churches in the world, and it's in one of the smallest towns you can imagine, it's the biggest and best thing going on in that whole region. That's how you do that. You go, and if you're called to small town in America, if you're here today and you're not from Denver, you're a smaller town in Colorado, you go back home, and you build the best church in that city. You, you go where God calls you to go. But my friend was so discouraged because he had lost several couples to out of state moves. Good couples, solid people, people who had made really good church members, but really, really abysmal missionaries. I said, Bro, you're my friend. I love you, so I'm gonna tell you the truth. You get what you preach. He said, what do you mean? I said, all I ever hear from you is how bad it is in California. How bad the politics are. How how bad the prices are. How bad the traffic is. How bad the lockdown is. How bad the mandates are. How bad the governor is. How bad the liberals are. What do you expect? You get what you preach. Are you equipping people to live on mission in a pagan city? Or are you creating a culture where people see that this field and and I, I, I gotta go and I gotta sell everything I have so I can buy this field? What do you expect? You get what you preach. God calls you elsewhere, you go. But I'm not talking about following the call of God. I'm talking about fleeing a field because it doesn't feel good anymore. I'm challenging this room right now to stop spewing negativity about the cities in this nation. I cringe when I hear preachers rail on our cities. I I heard a preacher say one time that the horrific wildfires that we faced last year that killed hundreds of people in our state and and, and all over. Colorado is not exempt from this by any stretch of the imagination. You are right there with us. And I saw a preacher get on social media and say that the, the wildfires were God's judgment on California because our state didn't vote Republican. Listen, the political system in this country has divided us and given us a false sense of justification to say whatever we want to say and feel justified about saying whatever we want to say about people on the other side of the aisle. And I don't see that supported in scripture. I see a Christ who stood above Jerusalem and he fell to his knees and he was moved with compassion and he wept over the people because they were scattered as sheep without a shepherd. I saw a Christ who was moved, he was moved with compassion and he wept for his city. We gotta be mindful of the language we use around our people, about the cities that God loves. Be mindful of the political language that we use around these young people that we are called to be moving them into mission and not mobilizing them for our favorite political candidate. This is why we feel ill-equipped to reach this world. Because we're members. I, 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 there's a reason, Brother Trump. why apostolic, Holy Ghost-filled people who get saved at churches in urban areas end up moving to small-town America, more conservative towns, more comfortable towns. They, they, they go where everyone thinks like them, and they go where everyone votes like them, and they go where everyone else goes to church on Sunday morning like them because we have members, but we don't have enough missionaries. We condemn our cities out of frustration over politics, and, and we, 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 we do this and, and we, because we have members, but we don't have enough missionaries. And when we do this, we don't even realize that we are creating a culture that is detrimental to our own future. Over the last several years, but already I've met more apostolics, good apostolics, Holy Ghost filled apostolics, apostolics with good jobs, apostolics with roots in these cities, moving out to smaller areas far more than I've ever met an apostolic couple moving in to a city (laughs) as missionaries. Meanwhile, this world is moving into the cities the Holy Ghost-filled people are fleeing out of. Not following the call of God to be missionaries. No, following comfort and housing prices and cheaper gas and better politics. When you look on the multitudes in this city, when you look on the traffic in Denver, when you look on the craziness and the politics of this broken, pagan city, when you look on the traffic and you look on the housing prices and you look on the liberal culture and you look on the pagan culture, uh, the challenge has got to be to be moved with compassion because they faint. They're fainting in the streets. They're fainting in the schools. They're fainting in this world. They're scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Why are they raging? in the streets of Portland because they have sheep without a shepherd. Where are the shepherds at in our city? Why? Why are they raging on the streets of D.C.? Why are they raging in the streets of Hollywood? Because they are sheep without a shepherd. When he saw the crowds, how many miracles of Christ happened because he was moved with compassion? Many, many, we've got to be moved with compassion. I'm hurrying today. I'm almost done. (laughs) We need more than sympathy. We need compassion. Amen. Uh, Be seated for just a minute. I'm almost done. An apostolic ministry with a missionary mindset will introduce at least three values into a pagan culture. Value number one, it will introduce Christian theory to combat critical theory. Christian theory challenges critical theory at its very core. What is the answer to critical theory today? Let me tell you something. The answer is not a political savior. This is what's wrong with us, church, today. We, we, try to, we try to make a savior out of somebody in the White House. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We, we, we talk so much about our cities, and, and we talk so much about our education centers, and this is, this is the hub from which thought emanates. I don't think it's a coincidence, Bishop Haman, that as we fled the cities, this nation has become more and more pagan. You think about the revival that sparked this modern movement. And it has roots in many places, Indianapolis and Houston and Topeka and other places. But where it really took fire was Los Angeles. And why is it that Los Angeles is the place that produces so much of culture? But there's so few apostolic voices. The place where all this started. We left. We ran scared. Members, not missionaries. You know, I'm thankful for uh, rural America. I'm thankful for small town. I'm thankful for, you know, I was in Louisiana recently. And uh, I was deputizing Louisiana, and it was quite an experience. I've been to Louisiana a few times, but never really got to drive the, the spine of Louisiana right through the middle of it. I went right through the middle of Louisiana from the bottom to the top. And that highway, I forget the highway, but every few miles, United Pentecostal Church, United Pentecostal Church, United Pentecostal. I'm thankful for that. I praise God for that. But I look at a state with a population of 4 million people. And I look at my city with a population of 4 million people just in the city limits. And almost 20 in the greater region, but four just in the city limits. And we have three United Pentecostal churches for 4 million people. And I go to Louisiana, they've got 400 United Pentecostal churches for the same amount of people. And I thank God for the revival that they've had in Louisiana. But I look at this city called L.A. where culture emanates from. Influence emanates from. Hollywood emanates from. Where are the shepherds? And the people scatter like sheep because they have no shepherd. They're broken. Christian theory. I I often wonder this. What if we still had a strong voice in the heart of L.A.? What would the nation look like? Christian critical theory has emanated from higher institutions of higher education. I believe critical theory to be a very big threat. However, I do understand that the only way to combat this is not by getting the right guy in the White House, but it's by enough missionaries rising up in our cities Because the Christian ethic relentlessly questions critical theory and wonders how can the same universalism which culture claims free will of the individual has led to our current cultural condition in which all moral values are relative. All relationships are transactional. All identities are fragile. And all sources of fulfillment are disappointing. Christian theory comes in and says there's a better way. The second value that a missionary mindset will introduce into a pagan culture is post-evangelical evangelism. An understanding that we have to reach these cities in a new way. We can't keep doing the same thing over and over and over. We, we might experience a little revival, but we're not going to shift from revival into harvest, amen, if we keep doing the same thing, amen. And, and how you, so the questions then is, is, how do we get their attention? I hope this is okay today. I know this is a preaching conference. I hope this is okay. How do we get their, how do we get people to pay attention to a gospel that they find irrelevant at best, offensive at most? And the other question is attraction. How do we help non-Christians recognize that they have a problem that needs to remember the idea that they need salvation for so many pagans is the thing they need salvation from? And how you answer these two questions will frame how you present the gospel of the kingdom. Two biggest mistakes I made in preaching. Mistake number one, I've tried to communicate in a way that caters to my comfort zone. And as a church planner, I try to put pressure on myself to have camp meeting church every Sunday. You can't hide behind Camp Meeting Church and reach our cities. We can't get up and preach the candy sticks and reach our cities. Amen. You have to learn how to manage your, your expectations of the outcome. Listen, outcome is God's responsibility, but obedience is my responsibility. And as long as I'm obedient to what God has called me to do, the outcome is his responsibility and if all i do is preach for a a hand clap and all i do is preach to get people on their feet i'm not preaching to get people on their feet i'm preaching to get people into heaven and i'm preaching to get people sent into the city we want to produce missionaries i'm talking about a missionary mindset we put pressure on ourselves sometimes to church planners. I've got stories I could tell, but I'm I'm taking too much time today. But the second mistake I've made is I've tried to communicate in a way that caters to biblical illiteracy and cultural pluralism. Just try to preach a message that is non-offensive in the hopes that maybe our, our, our hearers might accept us. But the problem is, what you're left with in doing this is just compromise. And in an attempt to relate to modern culture, many preachers have created this sort of religious doublespeak that doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't risk offense. It's culturally approved, but it doesn't mean anything. Prophecy is sterilized. The narrative of the text gets filtered through psychology, all in the hopes of getting our worldly hearers to take us seriously. But the gospel is either the power of God unto salvation, or it's nothing at all. It's nothing at all. It loses its power. It loses its efficacy. When the preacher's language becomes vague and ambiguous. So how do we do this, brother, and Because... I mean, we knew how to do it a few years back, but how do we do this? This is a question that is at least as old as the, uh, the New Testament. How did the New Testament preachers preach to the gospel to their cities? How, how is it that those preachers would, would use the Greek and, 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 and yet did not accept the, the, the cosmology and the cultural nuances that accompanied the Greek language in which it was conceived and well, you look at Acts 17 Paul's on the Areopagus we talked about this in the forum today this is the hub of pagan culture this is the the, the city of, of, of Pericles and the city of Plato and, and and the gospel to this point it's reached it's reached the poor and it, it's reached rich people it's reached Jewish people it's reached Gentile people it's reached slaves and free it's reached male and female but now the question is can the gospel hold its own in this sophisticated, uh, intellectual, uh, prominent, pagan university town. Can the gospel hold its own in Denver? Can the gospel hold its own in DC? And in Acts chapter 17, Paul—he's—he's—he's he's, he's on the pinnacle of pagan culture here. Mars Hill, the, and he he's he he starts to preach. What does he do? He appeals to their religious nature. He appeals to their education. He appeals to their culture. But he never minces words about the gospel. He preaches the death and the burial and the resurrection. He preaches heaven and he preaches hell. He preaches repentance and he preaches the judgment to come. So what was the response? Well, the response is much the same as he encountered elsewhere. Some mocked. Verse 34, but others believed. But others believed. I believe today that there are enough others in Denver and there are enough others in DC and LA. Some are going to mock. Not everybody's going to receive this message. Not everybody's going to receive what we have. Some will mock, but others will receive. Others will receive. And where the word is faithfully preached, some are going to mock, but thank God there's going to be some others that are going to receive the gospel of the kingdom. How is it that Paul, even with his unparalleled unsurpassed preaching ability does not remove the offense of the gospel. He accentuates it. He highlights it. The God whom Paul proclaims is not just another option in the cosmos for these Greeks. It's It's not a pluralistic God content to be one of many, but the gospel that Paul preaches, the God that Paul preaches to these pagans, he presents as the Holy One of Israel, a jealous God without rivals and without equal. And Paul never minced words about this because a missionary mindset introduces the word into pagan culture. The third thing, and I'm winding down with this, that a missionary mindset will introduce into a pagan culture is a social vision that defies society's social labor lab, labels. In a world that seeks to divide us on political lines, in a world that seeks to divide us on racial lines, on class lines, on lines of gender. A missionary mindset produces a ministry, a church that is committed to being multiracial and multiethnic. In a culture that values money and power above all else, a missionary mindset is is committed to seeing the outcast, to seeing the poor, to seeing the marginalized in society. Psychologist Kurt Thompson says, every human being, their deepest struggle in this life is we are looking for someone who is looking for us. This world is looking for someone who is looking for them. For musicians to come. You ever... You you have to see people. A missionary sees people. See 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 members do this. Uh, uh, yes, that's right. But missionaries see people, and they pick them up, and they walk with them, and they work with them, and they take them to a place where healing can happen. Missionaries see people. You ever read Romans sixteen? I mean, it's just a collection of greetings. It's, it's so overlooked. <clears throat> Paul's greeting people in Rome. So he has a scribe write down his words. You know, he's he's just it's just it's a greeting. It's it's one of these. It's like flyover country. You know, you just fly over it. You don't you don't stop and really read it. And I like to stop on those flyover tidbits of scripture. and take a look, kind of study out the names. and Paul has a scribe write down this greeting, which this greeting is fascinating to me because if you look at it, there's Greek names in it. There's male names in this greeting. There's female names in this greeting. And, and all of these names are recorded here. And so Paul's dictating. He's, he's, he's uh, dictating to a scribe. And then there's this verse near the end of Romans 16. I, Tertius, who wrote down this gospel, who wrote down this epistle. There it is. I greet you, I salute you, I greet you in the name of the Lord. (laughs) Guys, girls, if I'm being honest, this is the most powerful scripture in the entire New Testament to me outside of the plan of salvation. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the name of the Lord. Who's Tertius? Tertius was the scribe. He's the person who's been writing as Paul is dictating. Tertius is a slave. How do we know he was a slave? Because um, um, Tertius isn't even a name. It's a number. He may or may not have even been a slave at the time that he recorded Paul's greeting here. So Tertius is just doing... The menial task of a slave, and at some point, Tertius is writing all of these names down, all of these Greek names, and all of these men, names of men and women, and 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 he's writing these names and he's listening to Paul dictate. And at some point, Paul stops, Tertius stops writing, and I just envision this, and Paul stops dictating and Tertius is probably furiously scribbling, keeping up with the great orator, the Apostle Paul. And Paul stops talking, and Tertius stops writing. And there's a moment there, and then Tertius kind of looks up and he sees Paul. And Paul sees him. And Tertius notices Paul is looking at me. And Paul says, Tertius, you should greet them too you're a brother too. And Tertius picks up the quill and he writes, I, Tertius, not even a name, it's a number. Tertius just means third, third, I, third. I, I, I greet you in the name of the Lord. Gaius, whose house we're staying in, greets you in the name of the Lord. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you in the name of the Lord. Sotus, Cortis, my brother. Fourth, maybe actually Tertius' physical brother. He, he writes these names down the city treasurer and Erastus and Gaius, this noble man who's they're staying in his house, and Tertius is just a slave, but Paul sees him and Paul says, You, you get your name written too. And now this slave named Third is staying in Gaius' house, and he's writing Paul's Holy Ghost-inspired words, and all of them to greet them by name. And this guy without a name, Third, he gets to write this letter, puts his name, in it gives it to Phoebe, and Phoebe takes it to Rome. Can you imagine with me for just a minute what it must have been like for Tertius to realize that Paul saw him, that Paul was looking at him, that Paul looked right at him and said, you're a brother, too. Your name gets written, too. You've got a place here too. See, this is the revolutionary act of of a missionary church. Uh, This is a place where no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what walk of life is your background, no matter who your parents are, no, no matter what kind of family you come from, no matter what kind of level of education you have, no matter what kind of neighborhood you come from, no matter what color of skin is on your body, there is neither male nor female. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither black nor white. There is neither slave nor free. This is what a missionary does. He sees people. She sees people. And I've just got a hunch that in a place like Denver, how many Tertuses, how many Cortices, are there out there on the streets of this city today waiting for somebody to say, I see you. I see you where you're at. I see you what you're struggling with. I see you what you're going through, but I've got a place for you in this letter. I've got, there's a place for your name in this story. There's a place for your name to be written in the Lamb's book of life. Uh, I feel the call of a missionary mindset in this house today. I want to open these altars right now. Somebody's going to answer the call. God, make me a missionary. I've got to be more than just a member. I've got to do more than just show up on a Sunday. I've got to do more than just hide behind the fact that I'm a Christian, I've got to become a missionary to this city. A missionary mindset, a missionary mindset, a missionary mindset. Come on, let's break that that membership mindset and let's enter into a missionary mindset so that we can transition beyond just having revival on a Sunday into having harvest in this city.